This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, Trinity. Uh, my mic, uh, they're still doctoring it. That is because I neglected to do my mic check. Uh, so don't blame the sound guys. That's, that's on me. Uh, I, I didn't show up uh, for them on time. Um, I had a, a, a question for you guys, and that is if you've heard of Bob Dylan. And now some of you might chuckle because uh, you're like, Bob Dylan, of course we know who Bob Dylan is. Uh, but the album that I'm referencing was released almost 60 years ago. And just to put that in perspective, 60 years before Bob Dylan, uh, Thomas Edison was kind of setting up light bulbs at the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair. It's been a while. However, I was listening uh, to Bob Dylan recently, and on his album from 1964, uh, The Times They Are a Changin', there's a song called With God on Our Side. Now, the whole album is a pretty significant social commentary on the 1960s, and this song is no different. And in it, he's challenging his listeners uh, on their assumption that God is on their side. It's like, is God really on your side? Because that's what we were taught and grown up with, but is it true? And there's one verse that stood out to me. Through many a dark hour, I've been thinking about this, that Jesus Christ was betrayed by a kiss. But I can't think for you, you'll have to decide whether Judas Iscariot had God on his side. And it struck me because I'd never really considered whether or not Judas Iscariot believed that he had God on his side. And I assumed that he probably did, at least as much as the apostle Peter did. I mean, think about it, both relatively devout Jewish men called by Jesus, followed him for three years, but both would sin against him. Both would sin against others. Both could be rash and self-serving. Both would fail to worship him as the king that he is, truly. Both would betray him in their own ways. One with a kiss, one by denying him three times. What about you? Do you believe that God is on your side? just like Peter and Judas? And how do you know whether or not you'll be Peter, forever revered for your faith, or Judas, forever despised? How do we know that all of our work and our faith and our serving, how do we know that all of our errors and sins um, don't separate us into one of these two categories? People who say that they follow Jesus, how can we know that we have God on our side? Our passage today is about King Saul, and in the next few chapters, and really throughout the rest of 1 Samuel, uh, we're going to see King Saul contrasted with King David. You see, King Saul would be kind of like Judas, forever despised, never quite the king he was supposed to be. And King David would be revered, despite the mistakes that he would make, and they would be many. David and Saul would both have major sin. David and Saul could both be rash and negligent. And yet David has God on his side, and Saul does not. Why is this the case? Well, as we read through our passage today, I think that we're going to see in Saul's life that there were three areas that he needed to focus on to understand uh, what he was doing in order to uh, get God on his side. And that's how he worked, how he waited, and how he worshiped. And I think that from Saul, we're going to learn that how we work, how we wait, and how we worship says a lot about our relationship with God himself. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word, which comes from 1 Samuel chapter 13. We're starting in verse 1. 
And we're going to be reading through verse 15. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1 through 15. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Bethaven. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, they hid themselves in caves and in holes, and in rocks, and in tombs, and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up to Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. To know whether or not God is on our side, we need God to tell us. And we ask now that by the power of his Holy Spirit, he would bless the reading of his word this morning, that it might change us to be people who know how to seek God's favor. Please be seated. So we're asking this question about how we know if we've got God on our side. How do we go about seeking the favor of the Lord so that uh, the things that he has set before us uh, might work in our favor? And we're going to look at three areas that we need to investigate, how we work, how we wait, and how we worship. And the first is how we work. But before I can get there, I need to give a brief summary of what's going on in this passage. Um, If you'll remember, uh, the Israelites didn't have a king in the beginning, right? And they demanded a king like the other nations. And so Saul was appointed a king, a king like the other nations. And he was told that when he was appointed, he was to go attack this garrison of Philistines. Now, he was supposed to do it immediately. Uh, We read about this in chapter 10. He didn't do it immediately. Now, it seems about two to three years have passed And now it's in chapter 13, and it seems that his son Jonathan does it, right? So his son Jonathan attacks this garrison of Philistines, um, and the rest of the Philistine armies hears about it. And Saul was probably smart enough to know, that's why he hadn't attacked them for three years, uh, that this would provoke the Philistines, and that their army was more significant uh, than the army that Israel had. Originally starting with 3,000, now they're up against 36,000 between chariots and horsemen. That's not counting the foot soldiers that are like sand on the seashore. And the people start scattering. Now, way back in chapter 10, uh, Saul was actually told 
to wait. So he's supposed to attack this garrison, and then he's supposed to wait seven days. And Samuel was supposed to come, and he's supposed to sacrifice offerings, and it was supposed to merit the favor of the Lord for them to know that God was on their side. And so in our passage here, this is where we pick up. Now, Saul's neglected his command for three years, so Jonathan attacks this garrison. The Philistines are mustering their army. Saul knows he's supposed to wait seven days. The seventh day comes. Samuel's still not around. People are scattering, crossing rivers. The army's um, uh, breaking ranks. He no longer has any people, even the 3,000 that he had. You'll see at the end of the passage, he ends up with 600. People are fleeing. He makes an executive decision. The sacrifices need to be made. We need to make the sacrifice to the Lord, to know uh, that, that we have his favor before we go into this battle that is um, extremely disproportionate. Saul, in this passage, we will see, does not work, wait, or worship like he ought. The first way that we see this is in his work. Uh, now, really, what I'm <clears throat> trying to get at with Saul here is that he actually does not do what he is supposed to do. His job is to wait. We're going to talk more about the waiting uh, in, in a second. Uh, but he also directly disobeys God's commands. He's not supposed to offer the sacrifice. Samuel is. This is not the first time Saul has directly disobeyed God's command. Way back in chapter 10, he was supposed to go attack the garrison of the Philistines at Gibeah right then. Three years later, his son is doing it. The things that God has made explicitly clear to Saul, he does not work to do. The first reason that Saul does not have God on his side is because Saul doesn't do the clear things that God commands him to do. And it's the same with us. One reason that we may not have God on, on our side is because we fail to do those clear things that God has commanded us to do. And generally speaking, in Christian theology, we call this sin. And we have two categories of sin that we tend to think through, and Saul's going to represent both of these for us. Uh, these are sins of commission and sins of omission. Maybe you've heard of these. Sins of commission are pretty easy. They're not very complicated. If you've got a commanding officer that commands you and you directly disobey, there are consequences. And some of you that have commanding officers understand that way better than I do. But I think we all understand this when we've seen the movie Finding Nemo. And Marlon's at the drop-off yelling at his son to not touch the butt. And Nemo looks him dead in the eye, directly disobeys, and touches the boat. And all of us, I think, actually feel it deep inside our bodies. <laughs> because we've all disobeyed father figures, directly looking them in the eye. And most of us know the consequences that come with that. And we watch it in the movie, and something deep down inside of us that was ingrained as children wrenches together, and we go, oh no. Sins of commission, direct disobedience, doing things that you're told not to do. But there's also sins of omission. That's failing to do uh, the good that we may have been commanded to do as well. Um, good actions that are within our power to do, maybe not directly told to us, uh, but things that we are to do anyway. Now, this is actually difficult for us to understand because uh, we don't tend to think of breaking laws this way. Like when we break laws in society, we have broken something that has been commanded. If it's not been commanded, then we say, well, I haven't done anything wrong. But that's not how God's law works. God's law actually gives us a couple of standards, not just a minimum, but also a maximum of what we're supposed to shoot for how good we are supposed to be, the kind of people that we are supposed to be in the world. Saul's sin represents both of these things. First, he, he directly disobeys God by not waiting for Samuel and by offering the sacrifice that was for Samuel. But second, 
he failed to be the king that the people needed. You see, kings in Israel's day were supposed to represent the perfect Israelite, the person who runs to God in the midst of their fear, the person who can wait, the person who has the self-control to do that which the regular populace wouldn't so that they could look at someone before them and go, that's what I'm supposed to be like. Saul not only directly disobeyed God, he failed to be the example he should have been to the people put underneath his command. Not all of us have people under our command, but we all have sins of commission and sins of omission. We might think that sins of uh, commission are, are easier to find, and they are. They're a little bit more apparent to us. Um, but sins of omission are just as serious. We have to work to put to death our sins. And we also have to work to be good examples to others, <laughs> to be good examples to ourselves, to be good influences in the society around us. You see, it's not simply enough to do the bare minimum. It's not enough to say, well, I haven't belittled my spouse or my children. You actually have to build them up. It's not enough to just not offend your neighbor, but actually care for them deeply. It's not enough to just avoid your enemies, but actually figure out ways to love them, not mock them behind their back. This is actually quite difficult to do, which is why I called this point work. Um, but the second reason I called this point work is because I'm a little bit vain, and my other two points started with W's, and I wanted this point to start with a W. So I know it's a little uh, uh, disingenuous, but really it's obedience. Um, the first thing that we need to do is obedience to God's law. In order to understand that if we have God on our side, we have to obey. We have to work towards being those people that he has commanded us to be. But this is not the only way to know if you have God on your side. We have to work to put to death those sins and work to be the people that God has called us to be. But we also have to wait when things are unclear. Now, waiting is exceptionally difficult. Kids know this uh, instinctively. Waiting for Christmas or a birthday is painful, right? You just can't wait another day. And it seems in like our kid point of views that like that fades as an adult, like all of a sudden we just have infinite patience. Um, but kids, it's not actually true. Uh, it's just as hard to wait. It's just the things that we're waiting for change. I think one of um, the most heart-wrenching things that we wait for as adults uh, has to do within the category of relationships. Maybe those who want to be pregnant but can't. Margaret and I uh, struggle to conceive and we have many dear friends who seemingly face much more insurmountable challenges. It's hard to wait, to face the same loss of hope month after month. But there are others besides this. It's hard if you have children to see them walking away from the faith, having prayed for them for so many years, and maybe to make the same mistakes that you yourself made. Or maybe just to show an ambivalence towards the faith that you wanted so badly for them. If you're single, hiring a spouse, these kinds of relational longings hit us deeper and harder than we would like to admit. And the reason I wanted to use these examples, amongst other things that we wait for, is because these ones are particularly painful and I think drive us to disobey again. You see, to have God on his side, Saul was told to wait. But we see that Saul didn't wait in obedience. Saul disobeyed while he was waiting. And it makes some sort of sense. I mean, think about it. Um, he's there with an army of 3,000 
uh, at least 36,000 show up, but it's probably closer to something like 60, 50 or 60,000 people. There is no chance. You're like, this is the end. Whatever rain I had for the last two or three years, it is coming to an end right now. And the people know it. They don't trust me. They don't trust each other. They're fleeing for the hills. Actually, uh, there's a verse in our passage, um, and it says that the people uh, followed after Saul trembling. And I think sometimes we, we read that, and we, we hear them uh, say that, and we think, oh, Saul was being stoic, and, and you know, his faith was right because he was the king. Um, but then everybody else was behind him, like, shaking. But actually, it seems that the emphasis of that verb is actually they, they followed him as he himself trembled. Saul was afraid himself. Now, what's interesting about this is that Saul tries to wait, right? I mean, he gets all the way to the seventh day, but it seems like he doesn't get all the way through the seventh day because immediately after he disobeys God and offers a sacrifice, Samuel shows up. I mean, it's just like uh, the, the, the narrative irony in here is amazing. It's like he sacrifices and then like turns around and Samuel's there and you're like, or yeah, Samuel's there. And he's like, what, were you just hiding behind a bush or something? Saul was called to wait in obedience. But in the midst of the fear of the longing, he disobeys God, takes matters into his own hands. Now, God doesn't promise to answer our fears, our longings, our desires, the things that we're waiting for in seven days like he did to Saul. But as we wait for those things that we long for, I wonder if we're tempted to be just as disobedient. I think we often turn to cynicism or despair in those times of waiting. In cynicism, we may turn back to those sins that we have used time and time again. We, re, we, we return to well-worn paths of self-medication, trying to nurse deep wounds with poisons that are sins instead of running to the one that has the only medication to truly heal us. To have God on our side, we ought to wait in obedience. But what does this waiting in obedience look like? Well, a faithful example that we're going to see later is actually King David. Now, we don't need to know a lot about King David right now. We know that he's contrasted with King Saul, that he can wait in longing a little bit better. And if you've read anything from the Psalms, a bunch of which are from David, you can see David pour out his heart to God time and time again. Because see, I imagine it like this. I imagine that Saul was trying to be a king like the other nations. And so lead his nation into battle just like kings of the other nations led into battle, which meant being stoic, dispassionate from emotions, never being scared, putting on a good face. And maybe, as we see in other places in Scripture, there is a good time for that as leaders. But it appears here that Paul needed to, or Saul needed to show a little bit more vulnerability. King David could show a lot of vulnerability, pouring out his, song, his psalms and longing for the Lord to execute justice, to deliver him from the hands of his enemies, to forgive him of his sin. He pours out his fears, his doubts, his questions to the Lord. David doesn't feel the need to put on a strong face, but embraces that waiting upon the Lord is unbelievably challenging. So he cries out to God in prayer. We'll see him later find solace among fellow believers. He uh, devours God's word to find uh, words of comfort in it. We could look for comfort and solace from our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, we can pour over God's word uh, to find those words of comfort that he has built in there. But even in the midst of our greatest disappointments and our greatest hurts and our greatest fears, we never have an excuse to disobey the Lord. 
to turn to cynicism or despair. He may tell us to wait for deliverance, but he promises to meet us as we wait, to not abandon us or forsake us, to give us what we need to stand up under temptation to betray him. In order to know that we have God on our side, we have to work and we have to wait in obedience. But there's one more thing that we can do, and that is worship. Saul fundamentally believed that worship was a manipulative act, and I think that we do too. You see, Saul believed that God would be on his side because he offered sacrifices. He thought that God would be happy with sacrifices, whoever offered them, as long as the sacrifice itself was pure. But God tells them time and time again that the blood of bulls and goats was never about appeasing or manipulating him. He's not a temperamental toddler or a self-serving politician that only takes payments in sacrificed animals. Do you know what the sacrifices were really about? They were really about Saul and the people of God being reminded just how much they cost. I've heard it told this way, uh, that if all of the people of Israel uh, were to bring the sacrifices that they were to bring to the tabernacle or the temple, and all of those animals were sacrificed there, there would be literal rivers of blood flowing out of the middle of the city. So much blood. Now, you could interpret that a couple of ways. Uh, Maybe God is just like the pagan gods, and so he just needs a lot of blood to be satisfied. But the whole purpose of the blood of bulls and goats, as we read in Hebrews, was to point to how costly it would be for God to save a people for himself. Way more costly. The people might bring the cost of their own uh, uh, bulls and goats to sacrifice. And they may experience a small fraction of the cost of what it would cost God himself to give his own son to ransom many. The blood that is more pure the better covenant. Saul primarily saw worship not as a response to the deliverance that he's already seen, but as a way to manipulate God, to buy God off. And I think that we also do the same. Here's how I think we do it. I believe that uh, we believe that coming to church makes us more moral people, more pleasing in the sight of God, that God counts our attendance and he knows and he will give protection to our kids and our family members. That he sees our tithe, our giving of 10%, and so he'll protect the other 90. That he'll protect our going in and our coming out. He thinks that our praises will, we think that our praises to him will make him happy. And that because of that happiness, he'll give us the deepest longings of our hearts here and now. That he may make us wait a little while, but we know that it's coming. We know that we'll finally receive all those crowns that we've stored up that we've sacrificed so much and we've passed up on so many opportunities that this God will bring justice and make things right for us. Maybe you notice that a lot of this sounds like Scripture. That's because some of it is. But the problem is not with Scripture itself, it's with our own interpretation of it, is that we take these things to be the ends themselves and we believe that God is a means to those ends. The worship of God is not a means to an end of our own happiness. We may make it sound holy, but it is really trying to manipulate God to your side. To your own personal successes, your own name, your own family, your own business, and your own crowns. God just helps you get that which will make you happy. 
between work and waiting, uh, worship is really the one that is the most subversive. Because I think we can all collectively gather here and tell ourselves that we're here to worship God when really we want to pat ourselves on the back and say that God is really um, just a means to our own ends of happiness. Notice the worship songs on the radio. And I want to, I want to be careful here. Um, so often, many of them talk about God helping me and I. About how I believe. Now, few of these songs contain outright heresy. And I would argue that actually many of them do actually lift up God's characteristics that should drive us to praise Him. But the question I want to ask you is what really causes your heart to worship in those songs? Is it God's character? Or is it the fact that God's character means that He's for your plans? He's for your crowns. He's for your happiness. To know that God is on your side, you have to work at obedience. You have to wait in obedience, but you also have to worship in obedience or with a pure heart. Saul tries to do all of these things. I mean, maybe, maybe not the uh, obedience piece. He does directly disobey. But, you know, David also will directly disobey. What, again, is the difference between David and Saul? Saul tries to wait, and he tries to worship. He's doing the best that he can. I think that we identify deeply with Saul. We try to work. We try to put to death our sins and do righteousness. But we still neglect to do what he clearly commands, and we fail to be those people that he's called us to be. We try to wait, but just like Saul, at best we might get through six of the seven days before we break down in cynicism and despair. We try to worship, but our hearts are deceitful above all things. We make worship about us instead of God himself. If history were to tell our story, who would, be, who would we be more like? David and Peter or Judas and Saul? What really was their difference? Well, our passage actually answers this in verse 14. It says that God has sought out a man who is after his own heart. And if you know the other names for King David, he's repeatedly called a man after God's own heart. Now, I gotta say, if we're gonna be given the comparison of who we're supposed to identify with, a man after God's own heart or Saul, um, I think that all of us on honest reflection would probably be like, we're much more like Saul. It would be hard pressed for us to, to be described as people who are after God's own heart 100% of the time. So was it just that David tried harder? Tried harder at working, waiting, and worshiping, and so he had God on his side? How is it that David was able to be so revered and Saul so despised? How did David get God on his side? One of my favorite movies has this line. Uh, one character asks another character, whose side are you on? You know, they're not sure. They've never met before. So whose side are you on? And the one who was asked the question said, side? I'm on nobody's side because nobody's on my side. The difference between Saul and David and Judas and Peter, for that matter, was that Saul and Judas wanted God on their side, but Peter and David were willing to be brought to God's side. David saw God as an end himself, not a means. David cherished the relationship with God. He took breaking his relationship with God seriously, and he feared the Lord. You see, Saul and Judas believed that they had to work, wait, and worship to earn God's favor so that they could get what they wanted. But it was never really about God. 
It's about how hard they could work, how, how long they could wait, or how um, pure their worship could be. But Peter and David could understand that they worked to put to death sin because they had already been forgiven. They could wait because they knew that even if it meant their own demise, even if it meant taking David's own life, God's plan would still follow through and it would be good. Even if David couldn't see the good in his own eyes, David could understand that his worship was not always pure, and when called on it, he could repent in sackcloth and ashes and be drawn back, not because he was trying to get what he wanted, but because he understood that he had done uh, injustice to his relationship with God. Brothers and sisters, we don't work, wait, and worship in order to get God on our side. We work, wait, and worship because that's what people on God's side do. People who know the salvation that has been offered in Jesus Christ put to death sins of the body, strive to imitate him. People who know that God is good in whatever he does can face unbelievably difficult waiting, maybe even as they pass away themselves, knowing that God will not fail in his goodness. People that know the salvation that they've been offered in Jesus can worship purely because they know that God is the end, not a means to get what they want. The question at the beginning of my sermon was, uh, how do we get God on our side? And the answer is you don't wanna be working to get God on your side. You wanna strive to understand more deeply every day how you were brought to God's side. You wanna work to put to that sin because the power of Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf has forgiven you of that sin has set you free from slavery, has allowed you to do good works that please the Lord. You learn to wait in patience for those things your heart most desperately longs for, knowing that God will not fail to fulfill them in his own time. And it may not be here and now. It may be in eternity that comes. And our worship changes not from a sacrifice that we count on Sunday mornings about how many hours we've spent sacrificing to God when we could have been doing so many other things, making so much more money, serving other people. We come to worship because we desire to have that relationship rekindled time and time again. Brothers and sisters, the clearest picture that we've ever been given that God is on our side is that Jesus came walked among us, died for us, and rose again from the dead and said, I'm coming back for you. Amen. Would you please pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we are overwhelmed by how costly your sacrifice was to redeem us, a people for yourself. Father, we acknowledge that there was no amount of work, no amount of waiting, no amount of worship that we could give you that would make up for what we've done. That we needed pure work, pure waiting, and pure worship, and the only person that was able, ever able to offer that was Jesus Christ himself. Your son in whom you were well pleased, who went to the cross for us. Father, I ask for all of us in this room that we would correctly understand the orientation of our work, our waiting, and our worship. That we would not uh, subtly try to twist it to manipulate you to get what we want. 
but that we might allow you to be the end of all of our longing. That we might see all of the goodness that you have poured out for us. All of the ways that you have gone to redeem us. All of the tools that you've given us. That we would reach out uh, not only to your word, but to our brothers and sisters. That we would be brought again to your table to feast on your flesh and blood. That we might know that you love us. That we might not be blind to the ways that you have said, I am on your side. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the ways that we know that God is on our side uh, is this table here. Uh, And this table reminds us of just how costly it was for God to redeem us. This table is where we remember that Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed. The only one who deserved never to die sacrificed himself for us. The blood spilt so much more costly than bulls and goats, so much more pure, actually able to redeem, actually able to save. This is what we remember at this table, that we've been purchased with a price. Please allow this table to reorient your entire life, that God is on your side, but he's also on his own side. He's not coming over to give you the deepest longings of your heart per se but the deepest longings of what you need. Your true deepest longings that even though you are blind to, those things uh, that that you're not even uh, aware that you wanted in the first place, God says the fullness of my kingdom will come and you will taste it all. And right here is what we call a foretaste of that kingdom. A little piece of bread, a little thimble of wine to signify a great feast that we will have with our king when he comes to make all things right. The night that Jesus was betrayed, when his disciples rejected him, he took bread, and having blessed it, he broke it. He turned and he gave it to his disciples as I am ministering in his name, now give it to you. And Jesus said to them, take this bread and eat it. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new and better covenant. All the previous sacrifices pointed towards this one. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is my blood poured out for you for the remission of your sins. Take and drink. Do this in remembrance of me. If you believe that Jesus' sacrifice is the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice to which all the other sacrifices point to, the blood that was actually able to redeem, that actually satisfied the wrath of God, that was so much more costly than anything we could ever bring to this table, would you come to this table and receive that which was sacrificed for you? If you're not sure that this is who God is or, or uh, that Jesus accomplished what he said he did, um, I would reiterate to you the warnings that Jesus himself gives. Uh, that this table is, is not for those uh, who are trying to manipulate God, trying to please him by a happy action. <laughs> this is communion with God himself. It's a holy thing. It's a dangerous thing. So I'd ask you to refrain from this. We try to partake of it every week. If you've got questions that you would like answered, come talk to me, Kyle, or one of our staff members. We'd be happy uh, to to answer any questions you have about this. Uh, And then come partake with us another week when you are sure that you want to commune with this God. In a moment, I'll pray, and then we can come down the center aisle. You can go to the serving stations um, on my right and my left. There's gluten-free bread available if you need it. Just notify your server. Then there's red wine and clear grape juice. Please take according to your conscience. 
Um, please pray with me. Lord Jesus, your sacrifice is sufficient. Your body is broken for us and your blood shed for us. The perfect sacrifice. The costly sacrifice. Lord, help us to see how costly our relationship with you is and to understand what great lengths you would go so that we could commune with you. Amen.